I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, and today our guest is Alec Dawson, an M&A partner at Morgan Lewis and Bacchus in New York. Alec, thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. My pleasure. So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, your background. Secondly, SPACs in a number of respects. Third, the challenges of doing deals more quickly and more remotely. And then finally, your hobby of collecting lead soldiers. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to practice law and focus on M&A. So after college, I went into advertising where I was on the account side, managing a bunch of very creative people, looking at budgets, trying to get advertising campaigns launched. And around the time of the early 90s recession, working 70 or 80 hours a week, I determined that while this was challenging, I'd rather do something a little bit more rewarding and see if I could come up with a profession. So I decided to weather the rest of the recession in law school. And out of law school, I summered at Morgan Lewis and really have stayed there for the rest of my career. Getting into deal work was a little eclectic. In those days, you didn't start right away in a specific expertise. So Maybe you were in the corporate section, you did a little securities work, a little credit work, a little more well-rounded type of environment. But after a while, it became clear that I had a good feel for the deal work. Maybe it was the past advertising work, managing different type of experts, which deal lawyers seem to spend quite a bit of time doing to coalesce around a given position that's reasonable and workable. So i just been doing different deals uh, ever since for the last 25 or so years. And a, a lot of your work in the last year to two years has been around SPACs. What are we seeing now in that market after a year or more of extraordinarily intense and in the SPAC market, unprecedented activity? SPAC market has been crazy, especially since the SEC came out with their pronouncements that both affected the warrant accounting and cast doubt on some of the protections that might apply to the projections and business plans that SPACs like to put into their public filings. And as a result, that pretty much tied up every accounting firm and every big law firm trying to deal with the problems that raised. At the same time, there are still a ton of SPACs in the marketplace looking to do deals. So everybody's focused on both fixing the problems, seeing if we can get deals done. And then as a corollary, the pipe market, which, as you know, is a big driver of SPAC activity or or had been in the past, in essence, dried up a little, maybe because there were so many SPACs and because of these other challenges. So it's causing people to try and be as creative as they can to try to save deals or to reinvent paths to find new deals. Because after all, all this SPAC money has been raised and it's sitting there. People aren't going to give it back. So they're still trying to find find deals to do. So how do you think this resolves itself in the short to intermediate term, say six to 12 to 18 months? 
Well, I think the SPACs that have all been raised are going to work through these problems and find deals to do. I think the deals will be restructured a little bit so that the pipe component of the deal, which served to not only provide liquidity, but in essence as a validator to the market, if the pipes were willing to hop into the deal, it meant the deal was probably a pretty good deal, will have less influence. But I think they'll come back a little bit as more deals work their way through the system, their powder will re-up. These, you know, it's the same universe of people. They only have so much money they can allocate to, into pipes. So with that liquidity turned on, I think deals will continue to move forward. As I said, people are working through the SEC issues and coming to terms with those. And I think we're going to find maybe a bit of a different type of deal in two ways. One, people will work to have somewhat revised deal economics and deal structures where sponsors give up more equity or there's some type of anchor investors that would have been pipes that come in with a bespoke deal. And two, the type of deal we're seeing is a little bit different than we saw before. In some ways, the SPAC market has almost become a late stage VC market, giving people an opportunity to jump into higher risk deals that as you and I might be as retail investors wouldn't necessarily have a a chance to get into at this stage with the founders taking really almost all equity these days I'm seeing. So in the old, quote unquote, the old days of of a year ago, people would take a lot of cash out of the deal or a PE portfolio company would be sold with the sponsor taking a lot of cash out for obvious reasons. Now we're seeing founders roll into the deal in a public, more capitalized, but frankly, late stage VC type public company. It's interesting. And so you think that persists, perhaps especially in biotech, where it seems like the operating company's combination with a SPAC fits very well into how those companies raise capital? Yeah, I think that's right. Biotech, medical device, maybe other industries that are hot and have a lot of upside, crypto, electric vehicles, things of that nature where the upside is very large. You don't need necessarily a huge amount of infrastructure to make it work. The business plan is fairly understandable. And the founders think that with access to the public markets and public capital, they could gain a real advantage on their competitors. Are there operating companies that go through this process and come to the conclusion that they're just not ready to be public or that the risk of going public and becoming a year and a half or two years later, an orphan public company is significant enough that they pause on doing a combination with a SPAC? There are. That's a good question. I would say in the last six months, especially after the SEC pronouncements, the conversations we're having with potential DSPAC targets, you know, really almost pitch conversations to clients, have turned a little. In the old days, it used to be, how fast can I sell myself to a SPAC? And and we'd have to talk about all the challenges and the need to have PCOB financials and the need to be a public company literally on day one after you close the deal. Now people are coming to us saying, well, I've hired X to do a PCAOB and public company readiness audit. I'm also, I have a bank I'm talking to about a SPAC an IPO, and potentially a late-stage private capital raise with a VC fund or a, a PE fund. So they're carefully considering all the options and looking at the SPAC market and how SPACs are trading 
in a couple of years, because that's another good point. We try to tell them, look, if you're going to do this and take a bunch of equity, you're going to be a public company. You're going to have all those obligations to fulfill. But moreover, you're not just doing this to say you're public. You want to get a liquid security at the end of the day. It does you no good otherwise. We've seen more Delaware litigation around DSPAC transactions. Could you talk a little bit about that litigation and how it may affect not just the DSPAC process, but potentially how SPACs structure themselves even before signing up a transaction? So SPACs are an interesting intellectual challenge when it comes to litigation. As you know, the shareholders have a right to redeem their shares and get all their money back with a little bit of interest, not a right a typical shareholder has. So when the board presents an opportunity to the shareholders and fully discloses all the risks, you know, complies with their duty of candor to it, one could say they've done their job. On the other hand, the founders who are all who are almost always on the board and even the independent directors have a bunch of promoted equity that is only valuable to the extent you get a deal done. If you never do a deal, you give the money back, those shares go away. So the plaintiff's bar in Delaware is focused on that as an inherent conflict, saying, in essence, that every deal a SPAC presents to its shareholders is subject to the affiliate duty of loyalty, interested transaction test and measured at a higher standard of scrutiny. I don't think that's the right analysis, but it is one that we face and that is going to continue to be faced. So if you think about those two competing thoughts, the way that the risk is exacerbated is for SPACs that are at the end of their runway. So the theory is, look, as you know, you have two years, maybe 27 months to get a deal done. If it's only three or four months left to go, the plaintiffs are going to allege that the board presented a bad deal simply because for them, doing a bad deal is better than doing no deal at all, the the Hail Mary uh, thesis of plaintiff complaints. So how do we mitigate that? Well, first, doing a deal early mitigates that quite a bit, because if you have 18 months of runway left and you present a deal, why would the sponsor present a bad deal when he has 18 months to find a better deal? After all, the sponsor wants the shares to go up. That's how he gets incentive. The other thing we're seeing SPACs get in trouble with is doing affiliate transactions. So maybe a serial SPAC person or somebody at a hedge or a P fund will form a, an affiliate SPAC and lo and behold, they decide to buy a portfolio company. There, there are obvious conflicts of interest that need to be dealt with. So in order to mitigate those types of things, we're seeing the market adapt to add a few protections to deals. One is fairness opinions. You never used to see fairness opinions in SPAC deals because people would say, well, why is it needed? As long as we disclose everything, people can take their money back or not. But those are creeping in and I think will be fairly common going forward. We're also seeing independent directors sometimes have separate counsel, even though there isn't, in my mind, an inherent Delaware conflict. Just having another counsel out there to validate what's going on is giving some people comfort. I think people are also giving thought to not having the same board members on every deal. So you'd see these serial SPACs, very successful ones, doing good deals, do six, seven, eight SPACs doing deals, all stamped out with the same board members. The plaintiffs are alleging, hey, 
clearly those guys are in the pocket of the sponsor. They're not making an independent deal. They'll do whatever the sponsor wants. So they make sure that they get their promote on SPAC 9. If they raise issues, they'll never get picked again. So we're advising maybe to switch things up a little bit. And we do tell people to be very careful about doing affiliate transactions. And if they decide to do them, maybe we bake in even more of the protections we're all used to in the non-SPAC context, special committees, et cetera. You mentioned serial sponsors. How do you think they'll evolve? And do you think there'll be a shakeout where two years from now, you have a handful of serial sponsors that have emerged with real brand names and track records in the space? I think there are already a number of serial SPAC sponsors that have a good track record, David. I think maybe given the the new developments that we've just discussed, it'll be harder for new ones to emerge. But the big advantage those guys have, the serial people, are the track record. So the best way to get people to support your SPAC is to have done a successful SPAC in the past where the pipes or the retail investors have made money and there's a viable public company with a liquid trading market. So those people will continue to do well, I believe. And then I think that there may become a new set of serial sponsors, Ackman comes to mind, who come up with new ways to do SPACs, not just the old, the sponsor gets 20%, there's a warrant coverage, it's locked up for a year, et cetera, et cetera. But maybe is more facile to come up with some bespoke structures in individual SPACs. So there'll be serial people, but they won't all look the same. They'll look a little different depending on the type of SPAC it is, what they're chasing, et cetera. And then as SPACs and the subsequent DSPAC transactions become more prevalent, what role do you see left for the traditional IPO? When might a company still opt for the IPO over the combination with a SPAC? I think the company that has a more developed uh, operating history, a bigger company, maybe in less exciting industries, are still looking hard at IPOs. You know, it's, it's underwritten, so it's a, an easier path in a way to market liquidity. And the story maybe isn't as exciting for the SPAC with the high-risk reward as some of these late-stage VC companies were we're talking about. I think those companies who are confident that they'll get their underwritten IPO off are maybe going to steer a little bit away from the SPAC market that, where they perceive more risk has come out in the last six months. Certainly over the last 15 or 16 months, as everyone's had to work completely remotely, you know, the pace of deals has, if anything, accelerated. What challenges has doing deals more remotely and more quickly, not just during COVID, but in the years before COVID, created for you as a deal maker? And how have you tried to manage those challenges? I agree. Every year, the pace seems to get quicker. The the craziness in the SPAC world that we just talked about added a whole new level of pressure to an already overburdened M&A market. And it's probably funny to hear a lawyer talking about too busy uh, a deal market, but there are more deals, fewer resources, fewer people doing these deals than there used to be, especially through COVID as there's a, a good deal of burnout. 
and more pressure to do things as quickly as possible. What I think that does is it puts pressure on people to focus on speed of process, get the paper turned back out to the other side without having the opportunity to step back and really think about the issues that are driving a deal to, to really be thoughtful and maybe a need creative to find a workable path to a solution that benefits the deal, not just one party or the other. After all, it's called a deal for a reason. Both parties need to agree on something that works for everybody. And I feel that's something that many people have overlooked given the pressure to get things done as quickly as possible. And as you said, we've all been very isolated, but even before that, it was very rare or, and getting rare to get people in a room. I'm sure all M&A dealmakers have experienced doing multi-billion dollar deals without ever meeting the other side. So it's hard to establish that in-person rapport. It's hard to be able to call up your counterparties on the other side and have that honest broker conversation about, hey, look, they're saying X, we're saying Y. We both know we can figure this out. It ought to be somewhere in the middle. How have you tried to manage that? Again, not just over the past 15 or 16 months, but even before COVID, or is some of it just almost unmanageable? I think at some point, the need for speed is unmanageable. Hopefully, if you have good clients where you have long-term relationships, which I've been lucky enough to have, you can pick up the phone and you can say, look, it's just not realistic to get this out by tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Here are the things we're going to miss if we do that or try to find, you know, hey, how about instead of sending up a a full markup that just takes out what they put in and there's a bunch of red on the page, we sit down and we identify the top 10 issues and let's get on a call with the other side and work through those issues. Then we can paper up the words after that or somehow making time to just step back, think about it, talk about it with a colleague. I think that's an important thing we've all missed by not being in the office. A lot of good thinking is done by walking down the hall and getting into the office of another deal partner who you've worked with for years and just talking some issues through. We try to maintain that. Uh, I always like to have a partner who's not so involved take a quick look at something or be able to bounce something off them with clean eyes because it's very easy to get caught up in these processes as they move so fast. So to have an objective view can be very helpful as well. And and you find obviously, you know, even though you're able to pick up the phone, you're able to to do a a Zoom call, that for you isn't the same as, as having, you know, someone you've worked with for 10 or 15 or 20 years in an office three doors down where, where you can see one another and hash over an issue. No, it's, it's not as good. And it's certainly not as good as uh, another way to help mitigate some of this is the proverbial team meeting. So that almost never happens anymore to be able to get five or six people on your team, certainly not in a room, but on a call. So in the old days, it's nine o'clock at night, the, the phones have settled down. You can say, all right, everybody, let's get in conference room A. Let's just debrief on where we are, talk about it. What problem are you seeing? That way we can get an issues list out. We can triage what's happening. What's go- what do you mean the tax partner said this? All right, I'll take care of that. That type of thing is very hard to do in a remote setting. Even pre-COVID, just because of the time pressures people were facing. It, it was challenging pre-COVID, but that 
was something we were able to maintain because we focused on it. And it's, as I said, being at Morgan Lewis for over 25 years and really working with the same team of experts is, is helpful. So you already have that rapport. But if you were doing that with a team you hadn't worked with for for years or you're a new lateral somewhere or, or just a, you know, a new mid-level associate trying to figure it all out, I think those challenges are significantly magnified. Right. And then uh, finally, a distinctive hobby, lead soldiers. Tell us how you became interested, what you collect, and what you enjoy about. So I started getting exposure to lead soldiers as even a five or six-year-old. My grandfather was a collector, and I would go visit him, and he had them all displayed on shelves, and it was fascinating. So I started to work with him and understand the collection, collect them. It, It was a way to discuss history. He had things from all different periods. So you'd you'd look at a Roman and talk about the history of Rome. You'd look at Napoleon and talk about what happened there. So I, I caught the bug. And really for the next 50 years, I've been uh, collecting soldiers. And uh, much to my spouse's chagrin, I have literally thousands of them, some even displayed throughout our house. We bargain about the uh, allocation of display space from time to time. And sometimes I have to offset my soldier purchases with a corresponding jewelry purchase to uh, bolster her collection. So it's a doubly expensive hobby. And do you have an era that you're particularly focused on? I think my favorite era is the Victorian British Army. So there are a couple makers who produced a number of figures in the 50s and 60s that I particularly like, and they focus on that era. So I try to find those when they come up at auction. Sometimes you'll find them in a flea market or in an assignment store that are damaged and been able to find some people who used to make them in in the 60s and 70s who can clean and repair them. So it's a a way to add to the army. Alec, thank you so much for joining us. David, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Martins.